you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, I just keep feeling more blessed every time we bring on a guest, bro. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. Um, we're honored to have Francis Whittleson on our show, who is a political science a scientist and author of the book, Separate But Unequal, How Parallelist Ideology Conceals Indigenous Dependency. Thank you for joining us, Francis. Thank you for or, having me on. Or, or, or should I say Professor Whittleson? You what can say, Fra- no, just call me Francis. France? Francis? Francis. Francis is good. Francis, okay, okay. Yes, well, well, thank you, and um, thank you for um, you know being gracious and blessing us with your time. And can you give the audience a, a background on yourself? Sure. Uh, so I am a professor at Mount Royal University, which is in Calgary. I uh, did my PhD in political science at university with Leo Panich, who's a well-known socialist um, intellectual. He actually, unfortunately, tragically died of COVID in uh, December, uh, but he was a very well-known socialist. And I worked in the government, before I did my doctorate, worked in the government in a number of different departments. Um, and because the Northwest Territories, uh, a large proportion of the population is Indigenous, that's when I first became aware of Indigenous issues in a major way. I'd, I'd obviously been familiar with them to some extent, but I became much more knowledgeable about Indigenous issues. And then um, after I got my PhD, I was hired at Mount Royal University in 2008. And I teach a variety of courses there on public policy and introduction to political science. I have uh, been having some major difficulties at Mount Royal University, um, I guess, at least for a year, but longer, probably. But it's become unmanageable over the last year because of um, what uh, a sort of a takeover of the university by what is called reified postmodernism, which is also known colloquially as wokeism, which okay. is a highly totalitarian ideology which prevents people from putting forward ideas which challenge this orthodoxy in universities. So things are very difficult. Um, and I'm very happy to be here. Um, not very many people actually want to speak with me uh, because they I'm, I'm basically a pariah in uh, many circles. And so it's great. It's great to be able to communicate with people about what my ideas are uh, and, and let them at least have another viewpoint that they can consider in mm-hmm. thinking about indigenous issues. Well, yes. and, and I think, you know, there's an aspect we I don't think we'll touch on this too much today, maybe maybe a little bit near the end, uh, depending on, you know, what we what the way the conversation goes. But, you know, I think it's a good example of, you know, we probably have very v- different economic views. Uh, you know, mentioning that you're a socialist, I'm pretty free market in my position uh, on most most things. And I and think, also theologically, 
um, you're an atheist and we, um, we hold to a Christian perspective, but go ahead, Joel. But, and, and I think the beauty of it is to demonstrating that all those areas of, of difference, we can still have productive conversations. We can still mm-hmm. engage in ways that we're searching for truth. Um, I would postulate that for the most part, you believe in the concept of objective truth exists. Um, and, and whereas so much of today's discourse seems to be about actually attacking that um, concept and, and therefore it's not about conversations, it's not about discovering truth. Uh, and so having conversations with people that you disagree with is almost unfruitful. Instead, we need to silence them and, and you know, push them away because their opinions are wrong as opposed to, you know, finding, you know, what can I learn from someone else? How does that make me refine my position? Um, so I, I think hopefully we were leading by example in that regard. Um, and I mean, I've, I've listened to your, your episodes on uh, Kissing Graham Dialogue a couple times, uh, and I found and them, our friend IJ. Yeah, we're, we're good friends with IJ. So um, I, I found, you know, so many things that you were saying where at the most part, they're just avoiding the conversation or like the, you know, the, the indigenous issues, there sort of seems to be a, an avoidance to get into some of the meat of the issue. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this and, and hopefully the listeners um, will, will be able to, to walk away with uh, a more depth understanding uh, of some of the issues here. Yes, I completely agree. Yeah. And especially uh, like for me, uh, I'm a teacher by trade. And so, you know, the conversation on indigenous issues issues is always a constant, um, whether it's um, um, the land acknowledgements and so forth, or or putting together a lesson plan and and just le- trying to learn more about the um, indigenous experience in Canada um, is so important. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this as well. Uh, so you, you you wrote the book separate but unequal. What sparked that um, idea to do that? Yes, well, um, I co-authored a book in 2008 with Albert Howard called Disrobing the Aboriginal Industry, and that book was very, very controversial, uh, and it was basically exposing the lawyers and consultants, largely non-Aboriginal lawyers and consultants who um, had an interest in maintaining Indigenous dependency. This book, and that, that that, that book, although it was published by McGill Queen's University Press, was written more um, for a general audience, for for the general public. This book is actually what was originally my PhD dissertation, which um, is quite academic, but I'm hoping, at least people have told me, that it's quite clearly written as well. Like, it's not attempting to be obscurantist. It's, It's attempting to communicate, but because it is um, dealing with political economy and theoretical matters, um, it's a bit more dense than disrobing the Aboriginal industry. So it's basically looking at the same thing as disrobing the Aboriginal industry, but in a much more um, academic way, a much more um, theoretical way. So it's exploring the theoretical ideas, trying to explain how in Canadian history, when we look at that long historical overview of Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations, why is it that Indigenous people, can, and this is the, the marginalized members of the Indigenous population, 
why they continue to be dependent, even though so much funding and programs and so on have been devoted to it. So this is not to say that this applies to all Indigenous people, people with Indigenous ancestry. It's to a particular segment of the Indigenous population, which continues to be dependent and continues to suffer from all sorts of, um, you know, very significant social problems. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because I've always said this, like as a black male and, you know, the history of black people hasn't been the best. And so with our narrative, it's always been like broke, busted and disgusted. And then and then as a black man, I, I learned about the indigenous experience and I, and I watched them and I see what's going on. And I say, like, yo, like these guys might be worse than us. And so, and so am I, and you know, you got to ask that, like, it seems like they're worse than us, especially as black people in Canada, as much as we say we're, we're in a bad spot, I think they're in a more worse spot. And it makes me want to ask the question, how could they be doing worse than us? And they're not black. If black is the epitome of, um, of, of, yeah, of, of, yeah. Or of just being out and broken. So, so my question to you just in light of that is, um, well, first, can you define what parallelism is? And then um, the second is, what do you think the difference is between the Black experience and the Indigenous experience? Yes, and that that's a very good uh, thing to examine um, because it, it's, it's both, both groups have been oppressed. Uh, they're, 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 there's a history of oppression and it, it raises questions about, you know, why is it that some groups seem to be, to some extent, overcoming that oppression, while others find it more difficult to do that? And and um, parallelism, and this is an interesting thing too. Like I'm very, I'm very interested to talk to you because of that kind of comparison between the Black experience and the Indigenous experience. Parallelism is the idea that indigenous and non-indigenous societies and that would the non-indigenous would include black people uh okay. so um but that's kind of become a little bit more muddied now because you have this acronym called bipoc which is lumping in black indigenous and people of color wow um, I and, write and that they down. all sort of um uh, exist coexist uh, you know, a little bit in tension with one another. Um, but anyway, parallelism is, is the idea of separate paths for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Um, the two-row wampum is the metaphor that's used to express this, which is Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples will uh, live side by side with each with their own laws, um, their own economies, their own what's called ways of knowing, uh, of different forms of knowledge. And this really came about and it was solidified by the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which was a report that was developed, which was written in, in uh, 1996. It came out in 1996. And that was really the first time when this vision of the future became solidified was was with the Royal Commission and separate but unequal takes the Royal Commission as the 
foundational document. So it's it's actually going through the entire Royal Commission and looking at what the Royal Commission argues and looking at the assumptions under underneath those arguments. So the idea is, is that the reason why Indigenous people are dependent is because the non-Indigenous population um, insisted that they basically be assimilated within the Canadian uh, social fabric. And that sort of destroyed the Indigenous population. And therefore, the, the way in which Indigenous peoples will um, be able to rise again and to become fulfilled and not dependent is by um, them having control over everything, self-determination, control over their own lands, uh, their own political system and legal system, and control over the, their own educational system, which is seen as being quite different, fundamentally different from non-Indigenous people. Um, so that's kind of the parallelist aspect. Uh, and the book Separate But Unequal is a critic, it's, it's a critique of that position, that that is not a, a viable uh, way forward for the Indigenous population. And so that's that's sort of the, the first part of the question. The second the second question that you asked uh, was about the black experience, which I think is a, a fascinating comparison. And generally, the answer to that would be why is there the difference? And it, it would be from the historical materialist uh, background that I have. It would look at the labor, the participation in labor. So black people um, were enslaved in the United States, and they were needed for their labor. And actually there's a really good book, uh, historical materialist perspective called uh, Class Counts by a theorist by the name of Eric Olin Wright. And oh, so, he sorry, talks- sorry, Ms. Bordeson, okay. Uh, sorry, can you uh, define um, the historical material, um, what that is for our listeners who don't know? Sure, so historical materialism is the scientific version of Marxism. So it, okay. it, it's trying to understand humanity through the lens of what would be called class struggle. Uh, so the idea is, is that um, you have labor. So, so fundamental aspect of human beings is that their, uh, their participation in labor. That's, that's the way it's always been. So even if you go back in history for, to the beginning of time for humans, you know, you have human beings creating tools to improve productivity and, you know, create larger surpluses. And then at some point in time, classes developed, which was uh, people owning what's called the means of production, which is the land or um, today it would be factories within the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. And basically what happens, according to historical materialism, is that um, you have uh, people are exploited for their labor. And this creates conflict between those who work for a living and those who own the means of production. And in the case of the black population, they were exploited uh, as slaves initially and then as um, you know lower strata of the working class. Um, but it was through labor because you're needed. Uh, you're because you're the producer. The system needs you. Right. Yes. So that's kind of the fundamental basis for how you have power. So you have power because you are the one who is producing. You're, the the wow. black population is producing all the goods and services that are needed. 
In the case of the indigenous population, uh, you had participation of the indigenous population in the fur trade. But when Canada industrialized, uh, what happened was indigenous people, and this is the more controversial aspect of the book, um, because of the, the, the lower level of development of hunting and gathering societies, um, indigenous people could not compete with uh, labor that was brought from, from Europe and were gradually marginalized. And then they've been basically what I call warehoused in these isolated areas. So, and because indigenous people are not needed for their labor at this stage, um, it allows the system to, to kind of neglect them and to not really pay very much attention to them. So there's this kind of ongoing problem of indigenous people um, not being respected for their humanity, not being able to have uh, the power to be able to overcome their circumstances through labor. And because of this situation, this parasitic group of lawyers and consultants are kind of using the legal system to uh, extract transfers, which then largely gets distributed to privileged members of indigenous communities and, and these, what's called the Aboriginal industry, uh, which is what Albert Howard and I documented in disrobing the Aboriginal industry. Um, but just to, um, to just conclude with this book called Class Counts by Eric Olin Wright, that's the author, uh, he drew a distinction between exploitive oppression and non-exploitive oppression. So exploitive oppression is the case of the black population where mm -hmm. they were oppressed as slaves mm -hmm. and as members of the working class, whereas indigenous people um, were largely uh, not oppressed, but non-exploitively. So it was land that was, sought, that was sought after, not labor. And so mm. genocide, often genocidal kinds of activities occur when lands are... Uh, the target of the colonizers as opposed to labor. So that, that's, that's, that's my, would be my explanation as to why the black population, although still, obviously, we still have a lot of, <laughs> we still have a lot of work, a lot to, of work do. to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but still, like, until, you know, a few years ago, I, I really thought, you know, we were moving forward on this where people, racism was becoming less prominent people were really beginning to understand that racism is an irrational uh, kind of belief. And we were all kind of recognizing one another as being human beings. And now um, we seem to be going backwards on this, um, on this kind of uh, understanding, it seems to me. Uh, so that, that, but still, it seemed to me that the black population is, um, becoming integrated, becoming, uh, you know, still, you know, oppressed and so on in comparison to uh, the, the white population, but still is, is participating in labor, participating in all the various activities, whereas there's a significant proportion of the indigenous population um, that is still very much separate and marginalized in comparison to the non-indigenous population. Yeah, that, that that was helpful. Uh, I man, this gives me a lot to go back to the drawing board and to think about. So, if if this, like, we're twenty minutes in and it's already been for the people who are listening, this is worth listening to. You can stop listening now. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so that that was very helpful. Thank you. 
Um, I, I want to have a follow-up question with regards to the first part of the, the question with regards to parallelism. There's sort of two parts. One, um, I wanted you to um, explain, you said, you know, you, the, essentially the, the thesis of your book is why this is a, an untenable solution. Um, but I wanted to sort of, before you, I wanted to ask you to explain that. I wanted to make sure, one, maybe my understanding of, of what the, the claim is is correct and hopefully same thing for the listener. Because we, we, we had an, uh, an episode, or technically two episodes, sort of, um, you know, we sort of titled it, Whose Land Is It Anyway?, sort of discussing, you know, the, the, the legal rights even towards the land. Um, and, and one of the things I, I brought up on that show was that in essence, you know, they don't even have, you know, legal, full legal rights of their own land. Right. Like everything is sort of vetted by the government. Right. Even if they wanted to sell the land or make transactions with the land, you know, the government really has a significant amount of uh, influence and control as to what actually occurs um, with regard in, in regards to the Indian Act. Um, and so the 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 point that I sort of thought was one is is the parallelism really proposing sort of a, a two state solution within the Canadian borders you know, two legal systems, two systems sort of trying to operate, um, let's say, cohesively. <laughs> Would you say that that's that maybe is a rough estimate of what's going on, that it's a two-state solution almost? Well, that is what the Aboriginal industry pretends is the case. But it's not possible. So it, it's, a, it's an illusion. Yeah. And, really, and what... Sorry, I was really say, what, that's exactly what my sort of proposal was that the Canadian government's never going to give them full custodianship of these lands. Like that would sort of undermine Canada's influence and control. Like to me that just that is what seems fantasy about it. I don't know, maybe yes, maybe there's more yes. to it from your perspective. There is more to it, but that's mm -hmm. kind of the that's the argument that's put forward in parallelism which can never be achieved. But it's a disingenuous argument. Like it's not really intended to be a deed. What it's doing is making a case for what is, and this is a, some of the complicated theoretical stuff in the book, uh, for what I have called neo-tribal rentierism. So what, what the purpose of that is, is to make a legal case for the extraction of transport uh, in various ways. So what, what you have is you have this claim of sovereignty, that that's what the demand is, but it can never be realized because you can never have these small, isolated, unproductive groupings become sovereign states or sovereign elements. But what it is is that every time the uh, Canadian state tries to do anything on Indigenous, what's considered to be Indigenous lands, a legal dispute erupts over this kind of sovereign kind of argument. So you have all sorts of negotiations that go on, um, agreements that are made, transfers that are paid out, which is never settled. And then you go back again for more and more legal kind of wrangling, which goes on. So this is now, and British Columbia is the best place to to see this as well. You see this now with the lobster fisheries on the East Coast. The, the purpose is not to become a sovereign state. Uh, the position is to make these uh, arguments, these legal arguments, which can then be used as a weapon to extract transfers, which then are siphoned off by 
lawyers, consultants, indigenous leaders, etc., which never that money never gets to the marginalized group. So it's just this perpetual grievance uh, type of process whereby money is extracted and then siphoned off by the industry. But but the argument is is made for that purpose. It's, it's not made uh, with the intention of that actually becoming a reality. It's just a legal argument that's made to extract transfers. And that's why it's so frustrating. A lot of people become very, very frustrated about this because they sort of think, well, that was settled, wasn't it? So, you know, you have the residential schools, for example, that you had arguments made about the terrible abuses of the residential schools. $5 billion were paid out. And so people say, okay, well, that sort of solved that problem, didn't it? It's like, no, it didn't, because now there's going to be more disputes which are going to come out of the original disputes, which is the intention of the whole thing in the first place, is just as a rent-seeking, neo-tribal renterist kind of process that goes on. And if you look at anything to do with parallelism and indigenous, non-indigenous relations, it is this rent-seeking extraction of transfers type of processes that are going on. That's what it's all about. Okay, so for the listener, just to be clear... Just define the definition of uh, what do you mean? What is renterism and what is uh, uh, transfers? Yeah, so, um, and this is explained in, in the book in great detail, but um, renterism is when you use the indigenous kind of legal category to get money that is diverted to indigenous, largely indigenous organizations. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of done in three ways. There's three different ways this, this is done in Canada uh, with respect to Indigenous groups. The, the, the most common originally was um, royalties, and this is in any kind of resource development. So the idea is, is that Aboriginal title, this kind of whole legal argument that went on about Aboriginal title, which was that treaties uh, were never signed or the treaties uh, were not properly uh, you know, honoured, um, that's used um, as the uh, the mechanism with which to get corporations or the government to provide Indigenous groups with royalties, resource royalty. So that's, you know, if, if that, that that's not adding any productivity to the system, it's just siphoning off money. Um, so that's the first kind is through like resource development. Um, the second is um, uh, compensation payment for wrongs that have happened in the past. So the residential schools is a very good example of this. Um, as well, um, the 60s scoop was another kind of aspect, murdered or missing Indigenous women, etc. So it's like because of these abuses that happened in the past, each Indigenous person should be paid, you know, $100,000 or something like that, right? That does nothing in terms of the economy. That money is just spent. It's not, it's not invested to create new enterprises or anything generally. Um, so that's why it's considered to be renterist. Um, and then finally, um, the most disturbing aspect is uh, um, saying that money should just be provided for education and healthcare and so on. So it's what's called culturally sensitive services. So historically, the government is to provide education and healthcare. To indigenous communities. Now, lawyers and indigenous leaders say, you know, we don't want the government to provide this 
to us. We want to provide it ourselves and uh, you just give us the money. And then that money just basically gets siphoned off to all the different leaders and so on, lawyers and so on, processes. But it never actually goes into the services that are needed in Indigenous communities. So these are so it's a way of siphoning off money that is people think is supposed to be going to try to improve conditions for indigenous people. But most of that money doesn't go in that to that end. It goes for just, you know, paying off various, you know, privileged members of the indigenous population or um, but most of it goes to lawyers. A lot of this is legal uh, kind of wrangling. It, it costs tremendous amounts of money. Uh, to negotiate all these agreements and everything. And, you know, the real problems are really not addressed through this, this, this kind of process. So would you say that it's, you know, this perilous or perilism sort of, you know, um, idea that's never actually going to be, you know, implemented in terms of the two-state solution is is really the crux of all of this legal wrangling? Like, are, are, is your sort of point or objective to some extent to say we really need to question this concept and remove it from the co- discourse to yes. actually be productive? Yes. So that is kind of, it's kind of the, the house of sand, you know, the, the sand, a house built on sand. So it's like, it doesn't really have a firm foundation, which makes sense. But because of all the academic stuff that's been very highly corrupted over the last, I guess, 40 years, um, it's, it's not really understood that indigenous groups, and, and you said two-state solution, it's really not a two-state solution that is kind of pretended. It's a 600-state solution. Mm-hmm. So, or And actually, the Royal Commission, I think they had an 80-state solution. So they were trying to say, okay, we're going to group together all these small kinds of isolated and form them into 80, what they considered to be national groupings. But none of those could exist as any kind of state-like entity. Um, And the best uh, comparison in Canada is the Quebec case. So Quebec as a province could actually become a country. Like it has, you know, several million people, it has um, institutions, it, it could function that way. There would be some problems in terms of, you know, how to, it would relate to Canada and so on. But it, it, it's possible in the case of Quebec. But for the Indigenous population, it's not possible because they don't have any economic viability. They don't have any institutions. They don't have any kind of developed history uh, that exists with respect to the Quebec population, where you have like the French language and so on, that that could exist as a, you know, in terms of the United Nations and a state uh, like all the other, um, you know, two hundred states in the world. Uh, the indigenous situation, because they're marginalized, uh, that would not be possible. So it, it's sort of built upon this false assumption, which everyone is pretending uh, is viable when it's not, and, and and so that's a difficulty. And then the second difficulty is it just creates unrealistic expectations, which creates a lot of anger within the indigenous population because they're saying, well, you guys have admitted that we're sovereign or should be sovereign and so on, and then how come we're, we just have all this oversight? That well, you have oversight, that's really, it's the Canadian state that is the sovereign 
which is making determinations about what how money should be spent in the end, right? That's the final authority. Um, but this is never admitted and there's never any honesty about the whole situation. So it's just created this, you know, a, a deeper and deeper and deeper problem, which really needs much more honest discussion about, which is not happening because anytime, well, well I'm a pretty good case of this. I'm trying to discuss this, but every time I try and discuss it, I'm told I'm, you know, racist, white supremacist, et cetera, et cetera. And so everyone who's watching that says, well, I don't want to, I don't really want to enter into this discussion. This is not going to be a win. There's not going to be any way I'm going to uh, be able to uh, survive this kind of attack. So everyone just stays quiet and hopes somehow it's going to work it, itself out down the road. Yeah, I find um, it seems like most of the solutions that are sort of proposed or, or discussion that goes on with, you know, sort of the, let's say the indigenous issues, um, it just seems to be more of the same, right? Like, okay, well, let's throw more money at the problem uh, and, and pretend like that's the solution. Yeah. And that's um, renterism. That's the yeah, neo-tribal yeah. renterism. Yeah. I mean, I think when you said it, I was thinking, you know, somewhat along the lines of rent seeking. I think it's a slight modification, but but that's probably why I use a slightly different term. But no, I think I think you really laid out those three scenarios really well, because it's it's really a lack of trying to find a solution in the sense of let's try it's you know, the old saying of like, let's continue to do this. If doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Yeah. So somewhat, yeah. that's how I look at this. And and so much of it was just doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. Yeah. And um, and the parallelists would say, um, so, so I should clarify that there's really three positions uh, that can be, there, there's more, but the three main ones um, are the parallelist position um, the neoclassical economics position, people like Tom Flanagan is the most famous person who puts that forward, um, which is, you're talking about the Indian Act and all the barriers and so on, that, that would be that position. And then there's the historical materialist position, which is the position of uh, Albert Howard and me. Um, the parallelist would say the reason why it's not getting any better is because the the Canadian state has never really allowed indigenous groups to be sovereign so like and because they never have been sovereign never been able to be sovereign that's why they continue to be dependent so it's kind of a it's an interesting argument in that because my position is that, that they can never be even if the government said to them to indigenous group okay you now own your lands and so on that, that what would then they would still not be able to become an actual state with an economy and so on because everything is so interconnected in terms of various economic processes. So that that could never, even if that were the case, but of course, as, as I think you correctly said, the Canadian state is never going to do that. Mm -hmm. he, he, like it's not even going to do it on the sense of saying, okay, here's a group in British Columbia that has several, you know, square miles of land, they're going to say, okay, you have complete control over that land with your institutions because you have people traveling back and forth between the borders and so on. You have educational institutions where people are going off to university. Like there's, 
so much interconnectedness that couldn't really be um, severed from that. It, would, it wouldn't be possible. And, and the economic system would be largely resources, like resource extraction. That's about the only thing that you would see in those. And then you have many places, this is the greatest difficulty, places like Nunavut, uh, which have no economy, is absolutely dependent, completely dependent on government transfer. So what are those areas going to do? It, it just is not a, a viable situation for the most marginalized member. It just right. is not possible. Mm -hmm. uh, hearing you speak makes me, as much as, as much as your ideas are controversial, I can tell that you are genuinely concerned with... Uh, with the living situations of all indigenous people, especially those um, out on the margins. So I, I don't think, of course, I don't think it's fair that um, people would just write you off as a person who is racist or hates indigenous people. But I think your arguments, even though it's as hard line as they might be, actually provide a hope for better living conditions uh, for indigenous people. So with that said, you talk about uh, diversity and the obscuring of developmental differences. And and it sounds like you're pushing towards a solution. Um, what do you mean by diversity and the obscuring of developmental differences in your book? Yeah, so uh, this is the most controversial uh, part of the <laughs> <Okay>. argument. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, so diversity is how it's being described. In the, and this is the Royal Commission. This is taken from the Royal Commission, but it's basically it's the parallelist argument is that, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, there's just diversity. Like diversity is the blanket kind of descriptor of all. So Indigenous peoples are diverse would be sort of the argument that would be put forward. And okay. just as diverse as non-Indigenous uh, types of societies and and the, the word diversity is being used so that it is it's obscuring the fact that indigenous societies and this is not all indigenous people this is the marginalized indigenous groups mm -hmm. are less are less developed than modern nation states because of the hunting and gathering uh kind of history so it's not to say anything racial or genetic or anything like that about these groups if you took um you know people born in an indigenous society and you just raised them in um, the context of a more developed society there would be no difference you would see no difference between people but because these groups are isolated th these cultural characteristics which are associated with the hunting and gathering period continue to be retained in these isolated communities. And and that's not to say that they're destined to be forever like that. It's just to recognize that as the basis of the problem, which has to be addressed through various programs in order for that developmental gap, what's called the developmental gap, um, to be addressed. Um, but you cannot, it's something that cannot be spoken about. Like you, you really get attacked uh, very, very, uh, you know, strongly by, um, you know, the, the kind of postmodern uh, elements uh, that really just want to see everything in a culturally relativistic way 
and don't want to see anything from a developmental perspective. So, so that is the diversity when when div word diversity is used, and that's what the Royal Commission does. Um, they're using it in a way that 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 obscures um, what the actual problem is, and and this is as well. You can see it in the indigenous groups in comparison to comparing the indigenous groups to one another. So, the Inuit, for example, um, are the the least developed of all the indigenous cultures because of, and not due to anything genetic or anything racial, it's due to the fact that they were living above the tree line. And because you live above the tree line, you live a very, very sparse existence. Like you, you, you're spread out, you know, it's very, very, not a very dense population. Um, you don't have the technology is very, very limited compared to other indigenous groups. So if you see the uh, what's called the Haudenosaunee or uh, what used to be called the Iroquois, those groups relatively are very developed compared to the Inuit because they had um, horticulture, so they grew uh, beans, squash, and uh, corn. Um, they had pottery. They had these technological uh, types of advances in comparison to the Inuit. So even with the, you know, amongst the indigenous group, there are developmental differences, but just referring to them as being diverse prevents that from being understood. And and that's not, it's a complete environmental kind of explanation. It, it's not a, but people don't understand the difference between making a racial argument, which is looking at the genetic kinds of characteristics of groups versus what would be a cultural argument, which is, if you just had more technology that allowed you to have more control over nature, uh, you would that culture would become more developed, and then you would have developed things which would enable um, the kinds of processes to take place which were happening in in the European context, I guess, and at the time of contact, which was 1500. But tremendous advancements that had occurred in Europe that were were you know not not present within hunting and gathering society. So mm -hmm. It's trying to make that argument, which is just nearly impossible, uh, because everyone just think making some kind of racist thing about inferiority and the superiority, when it's just well, you know, you have certain technological characteristics that became possible due to environmental circumstances, which were not were not present. It was just a matter of luck that those resources were not present in. Um, indigenous societies as opposed to what existed within the, the old world in a larger context. Um, the, the person who's most famous for making this argument on a global scale is, his name is um, uh, Gunstrands and Steel is the, is the name of the book, uh, Jared Diamond. Uh, Diamond is, that, that's basically the argument, but it's, it's looking at it in the context of indigenous societies and their relationship to European uh, society. So if I, if I'm understanding correctly, you know, it's almost like, it sounds like this diversity, um, obscuring, uh, of, of what you would, what, you know, we're referring to as developmental differences, developmental differences is a, is, uh, would you say it's what you would sort of consider the primary, uh, causal factor in that needs to be addressed in terms of resolving some of the issues? Yeah, so there, that's that's one factor. Um, so in the book, it's called uneven and combined development. That's the theory. 
And actually, the theory was put first put forward by Leon Trotsky. That's where the theory comes from. Um, so you have the unevenness, what's called unevenness. So that that's the problem I was just talking about, which is that, um, you know, societies with Iron Age technology and agriculture are going to produce more surplus and are going to be more developed than Stone Age cultures that are hunters and gatherers. So that's unevenness. Then you have another problem, which is what's called combination, which is you have a more developed society coming into contact with a less developed society. And this is often done in a very brutal way. And, and that is, is always the case, usually historically. It, it's not done with a concern about the, the less developed culture's humanity. It's very coercive, and it just has a complete lack of respect for um, the less developed population, which could, the, the, the lower-level development could be addressed if the humanity of those groups was respected, or respected, but it's not. So they're basically just exploited and enslaved and oppressed. That's generally what happens. So in the capitalist context, which is the Canadian one, um, because profit-seeking is the character of capitalism, they were just seen as a, a resource to be exploited, not uh, groups to have some socialistic concern about. So that's the other problem, is that you know within a capitalist uh, type of interaction, uh, you know the group that's less developed um, often is exploited on that basis and is not really given the opportunity to become a part of the wider society. And, and that's to some extent what happened with the indigenous population. And of course, racist attitudes, that comes out of that too. So, you know, you had situations in, in Canada where, you know, you would have indigenous people wanting to, you know, be employed and, and to be participants, but non-Indigenous people would just have a racist attitude saying, well, they're just inferior and we don't want them to become part of our society. That Those racist attitudes um, are like sort of an irrational interpretation of the cultural differences that exist. So, And I think now we have certainly reduced the racist attitude which exists. There's still racism, it's still a problem, but it's certainly not the problem in the magnitude that it was, you know, 50 years ago or uh, certainly 100 years ago. So now that we have to some extent overcome racist attitudes, um, we can look at the situation with much more sort of socialistic intent. So to, 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 see and everyone as a human being who deserves to self-actualize and deserves to be treated with respect, deserves to have their needs satisfied, that kind of approach. Um, but we shouldn't be sentimental about it and romanticize hunting and gathering cultures either. That actually is kind of another, almost another form of racism to say that, you know, Indigenous people just have their own knowledge and they should, you know, be allowed, you know, they, that should be incorporated within their educational system because their, their what's called their knowledge is, is much less developed than uh, knowledge that has been 
emerged over the last couple hundred years with all the scientific advancements and so on that, that have taken place. Yeah. So with, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think, um, you know, I think to, to expand on what you're talking about with regards to the education, um, at first, there, you know, I think I heard you use the terms indigenous math or indigenous science before. Um, and I, I wanted to definitely, because I think that relates exactly with what you just said. Um, but I think there's this other aspect where, you know, I, I would use this term and, and it's sort of a, an, an agilist term, not necessarily totally related, but I think it totally is relevant. Have you heard of the term standpoint epistemology? Right. And, and so, you know, for the listener, it's again, a, a mass oversimplification, but, but really it's that the person, you know, and usually it's in the oppressed context, the person who's been oppressed has sort of uh, special knowledge that we can't critique or, or that their value, their opinion has to be sort of elevated because of the, the oppression that they've had. And so, you know, in this context, it seems like you know, I think I've heard you say the statement of like, well, how can you judge what they've said because I'm not indigenous? So, you know, with regards to incorporating indigenous math or indigenous science or, you know, any other sort of, you know, let's say, you know, adjective in front of the the, the schooling or, or education, um, how, how do you see that this is playing out? And I mean, I think it should be clear to most if we're, you know, taking the example of how to grow crops and you're ignoring the scientific education that we have today to help us do that more efficiently, but you're going to use uh, their cultural heritage of developing crops. Um, that's not going to help become more prosperous as, as a group. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can hash out a bit of what does that look like when they try incorporating the concept of indigenous math? How are we doing that? Or how is that being promoted? Um, and, and how is essentially discrediting those that are non-indigenous from actually engaging these ideas? Yes. So I currently, I just edited a volume called Indigenizing the University Diverse Perspectives, which is, uh, was it originally intending that just came out uh, now uh, and that kind of goes over a lot of this terrain. Uh, and I originally envisioned the book as um, having exchanges between the promoters of things like Indigenous math and Indigenous physics and those that were critics of that position. And um, But I unfortunately, um, all the Indigenizers, with the exception of a couple, didn't want to participate in that exchange. So I wasn't able to actually get that many pro-indigenization uh, arguments, but there's there's a few. And the two ones where it happened is most extensively was um, physics and biology. Uh, so uh, you had biologists and physicists who were making arguments about you know, indigenization versus um Physics is just physics. There's no such thing as indigenous physics. There is physics and non-physics. Um, and what you find, uh, my own view, and, and I, I tried not to, I put my own perspective forward in my own articles, but I, I tried to just be as objective as I could in just having an overview that I provided about them. But my own perspective is that the, the arguments about indigenous physics are... Uh, are flawed, are, are not 
don't 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 hold water are not are not supported in the end. And what you generally find happening is that it's really not physics that they're talking about. They're talking about spiritual beliefs of indigenous people. So um, there's spiritual kind of ideas that that's really the distinction between indigenous physics and physics is that the indigenous physics is a bunch of spiritual beliefs about um, rocks being alive and these sorts of things like, um, and, and has a lot of just general, you know, um, vague kinds of references to things. And, and the problem is, is that it, it's really justifying the lower level of education within the indigenous communities. That's, that's really what its purpose is, other than rent-seeking. So one purpose is rent-seeking, neo-tribal renterism. Because Indigenous people in these marginalized communities are, are often not very well educated, they're not going to be the ones hired to be the teachers if you want to have an actual educational system. But if you have an mm -hmm. indigenous, indigenized education system, now you can hire a bunch of elders to teach people, you know, about the stories of their ancestors and so on. Um, so, okay, so, that's what we have at my school. Yeah, so that yeah, that's so not. <laughs> I you know I think that this is not beneficial to helping people to become educated. Like it might be beneficial in some, you know, uh, you know, cultural, you know, uh, like yeah, cultural exposure. So so if you want to find out what an elder thinks about things then you would go listen to an elder but you you don't want the the elder's not going to be able to teach you anything about physics that that's not going to be the case and so what happens is is that instead of people becoming educated and being able to be actual participants in Canadian society they just have this kind of piece of paper which says that they've graduated from this program in what's called indigenous physics so I think it's got a couple of very, very destructive uh, types of uh, results. And, and the main one being that it just justifies the fact that Indigenous students are having a hard time becoming um, scientifically literate, becoming under, understanding the scientific principles that you need to understand. Everyone in the entire world has to understand. And that's kind of a real frustrating thing is that it's not Western science. It, it's science. Like Chinese people don't learn a different kind of science. They learn science. African people learn science. Um, to say that it's got an adjective of an ethnicity on it means that what you're teaching is not science. And, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, kind of learning about it from an anthropological standpoint, but it shouldn't be taught as being science which is universal. It's a universal uh, method that anyone can use. And if Indigenous people uh, want to be actual participants in Canadian society, then they're going to have to learn the principles of science, the scientific method, just like everyone else is. Uh, you know, any, any other culture from any other part of the world. Uh, but I think it's a very um, condescending approach to Indigenous people to pretend that you know, the stories that elders are putting forward has some incredibly insightful thing that is being provided that um, is going to be very beneficial to increasing knowledge in the world. Because uh, from what I've seen looking at all this material, um, 
it's not the case. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm guessing, you know, if we, we go down the road of the concept of land acknowledgements, sort of in the, in the same vein of, like I heard you talk about it on, on uh, Kazingaram Dialogue, that, you know, again, sort of, I, I just think of it, I, I draw the parallel because, you know, are these things actually productive is always the question that I'm asking, right? When we're analyzing things like so many policies or or uh, programs might be well motivated, but the, if the unintended consequences are greater than the intended consequences, well, now you have a program that's un, uh, you know counterproductive, and in, and in these cases, the questions you know whether or not we're I, my question is sort of like, well, what's the intended consequence, and and I don't even necessarily see that that's productive if the object again I'm looking at it maybe through the lens of developmental differences. How do we bring up the developmental aspects of these societies to to help them have greater flourishing, both you know uh, indigenous subjects as a you know thing that they're being taught, as well as you know the idea of land acknowledgments. Don't I don't I see that they may have some you know uh, symbolic value, but more than that, I, I'm I'm sort of struggling to see what is the real productive thing that we're doing here. Yes, and it, it's really uh, largely about making people feel good for doing nothing. So people think that <laughs> they're doing something, right? Like that's what, and I know I've been, you know, involved in discussions about this for a number of years in the university context. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with someone honestly believing that this is and they're just doing it and they, they think that they want to show respect or whatever the the, um, the idea that's driving it. But a lot of the times it's non-Indigenous people uh, signaling their virtue about how much they care. Um, and Indigenous people, I think, get, um, they feel, again, betrayed by this kind of tactic because they have a different meaning that they attach to it, which is generally got this sort of sovereignty idea, right? So um, the idea that they're the landowners and everyone else is a guest, like that, that that's what the, the pretense is when no non-Indigenous person really thinks that they're a guest. Uh, they, they, they see themselves as being people living in their house and this is their house and this is owned by, you know, this is, the crown has sovereignty and so on. And and this is just kind of done as a gesture to make Indigenous people feel good, uh, sort of that kind of idea. And I think that kind of dishonesty uh, is going to create serious problems down the road because it, it's not really talking about the way things actually are. Uh, and I and and I think it's it's just reinforcing this neo-tribal renterist kind of mentality of indigenous people owning the land and getting rent paid to them on the basis of owning the land, when really it is production. You know, we are all are producers. We all can be participants in producing the goods and services that we all need. Like that, that's really what gives us sort of a feeling that we actually contribute not i am this imaginary landowner 
and other people are pretending that I'm this landowner. And um, in the end, all that's going to come out of it is going to be maybe rent is going to be paid on this basis, which I think is the, the lawyers. That's why the lawyers like this is that it kind of solidifies the, the indigenous landowner kind of idea and rent's going to be paid. But, but rentierism does not lead to development. It does not lead to people's ability to be a contributor to the society. So it just reinforces the entire destructive ideology and is going to make Indigenous people very angry at the end of it to boot because it's not really um, being honest about the current circumstances. That, that that's, that's fascinating because I guess when I look at it, from of course as, a, as from a black person um you know we came for for black people most of the black people that got here to canada um was you know we either came to study or we came here for a better life and so in a sense like as a black person you know i have we have nothing <laughs> to do with uh the stealing of the land so as a black person you're like look i ain't paying rent to nobody <laughs> right I, you know what i mean like and, and i say this to people um, I don't yeah. know if you've ever been to Mississauga. Yeah. But it's I a very have. nice place. It is very nice. No, oh, yeah. Mississauga is very nice. Very nice houses, very nice property. I, very expensive pro- property <laughs> as well. <laughs> but I don't see I don't see that selling with black people or Indian people or any other culture where they're like, wait, that that's that's a white people problem. They took the land. I'm, you know, this is my, this is, this is where my house is. I'm already paying land tax. I'm not doing that versus, yeah. And, and that aspect. So let me, can I ask you this then in light of um, the idea you talk about uh, post-colonialism? Yeah. Right. And, and, and the combination of uneven development. Yeah. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, so that is looking at that. That's the I believe the fourth chapter, which is is talking about the, the interaction between capitalist kinds of processes and indigenous uh, hunting and gathering, largely hunting and gathering societies. So, um, and and post colonialism, post colonial theory uh, is is generally the postmodern, the applied postmodern kind of position on indigenous. Uh, that's the parallelist. That's the that's the theoretical orientation that um, parallelism relies upon. Um, so the idea is is that indigenous marginalization is is due to the fact that the colonizer denigrated indigenous cultures, did not respect indigenous cultures, and if we could only just learn to respect indigenous cultures, indigenous people would um, become stronger, have pride in themselves and so on, and then be able to finally become self-determining when it's really, that's not, in terms of my analysis, that, that's not the cause of the problem. So the cause right. of the problem is not being part of the labor force being marginalized from the labor force, and so therefore not really being a contributor uh, to society, and and just get you know getting to the point you're making about you know Mississauga being a, a you know a white you know like a, a a very wealthy kind of area and so on, um, 
but the idea is sort of that white people were the oppressor, um, which is not looking at it from a class perspective. So many white people, if we're going to look at it that way, which I don't, I'm opposed to looking like I don't, I don't see myself as a white person. I, I, it's a meaningless category for me. Um, mm-hmm. It's class. It's class that is the important thing. So mm-hmm. you have many quote unquote white people who had terrible circumstances where they, you know, for example, the Irish is a good example of this, who, who had to go work in the canals and all sorts of horrible occupations and so on. But they built the canal like that, that it was labor that went into those canals. And whether it's an Irish person or a black person or an indigenous person or whatever, that's their commonality is the labor that they put into all these enterprises, which of course was exploited by those who owned in historical materialist uh, jargon, the means of production. So if we could just get people away from looking at things from this kind of racial lens or this colonizer versus the colonized lens, but from a labor perspective, then we have some hope of mm-hmm. having commonalities that we're going to be able to reach. But that's being just, we're, we're, we're totally like, we're going in the wrong, <laughs> we're going in the wrong direction and things like land acknowledgements. And th- these are all just reinforcing this kind of, you know, indigenous, non-indigenous, black, white, whatever. Like this is, this is certainly people have been discriminated against on the basis of their race. That, that, that's definitely a terrible reality, but, that is at least until a couple of years ago that we were that this has been gradually overcome and certainly legally it got uh over it was overcome uh, by stopping the jim crow laws and all sorts of discrimination on the basis of race that that got eliminated we still have people being marginalized because of the history of that that still exists but we we were gradually kind of moving beyond that but we still have the class terrible, terrible class inequalities, which is the commonality uh, that people are suffering because they don't have access to the resources that they need to survive. And if we could just kind of reorient how people are thinking about this to the class basis of oppression, as opposed to, you know, someone who's an Indigenous person who's a very, very well off and, you know, is living in a mansion and has millions of dollars. You know, I'm sure there's a few people in that situation. They are a privileged person because of their class position. Uh, And and Mm -hmm. it's true that as as an Indigenous person, their ancestors and so on were, but they're no longer, like they've, that's no longer really a useful kind of way of looking at their situation anymore. Uh, but of course, those that are in those positions discourage people from looking at it for, through a class-based lens because they want to kind of, you know, use the indigenous kind of oppression kind of history to stop people from questioning them in terms of what they're doing and and so on. So I think that's kind of where we're at now. And because discourse is so and so badly contaminated. Um, by all of this reified postmodernism that I'm talking about, um, 
we really have lost kind of the, the source of what is causing people all these difficulties and how we can actually improve them. Uh, because we're just, it's becoming more and more, um, con the, the conflict is increasing in more and more irrational kinds of ways rather than addressing the conflict. Mm -hmm. No, that, that that's very good. I, it reminds me of like, so for the Black experience, we know this, that acknowledging Black History Month and doing a bunch of stuff for Black people hasn't really fixed the situation. Yeah. Right. And so like, <laughs> like, like, and I, I like the idea of looking at things from a class perspective, because then it takes away the idea of race. Because although people assume black people are lower class, no, black people are in every class. And for the black people that came here from other countries, like my grandparents, um, there's this idea of like this a special selection for people from the Caribbean and Africa and, and, and from far off that in order to leave your country to come to Canada, you have to be a special kind of um, industrious person, entrepreneurial person to say, okay, you know what? This I'm here in my my culture with my people, and then I'm going to leave my culture to go to Canada where there's white people, it's cold, it's racist, but I'm going to go there because it'll make for me a better life. And I'm, I say all that to say that that you have black people in the upper class, and I know. And if I'm wrong, if anybody who's listening is black and I'm wrong, ask yourself this. Like, you, are you middle class? When most of the people we know, we most black people I know come from the middle class and come from privilege, right? So people that I know who are in the upper, upper class of black people, they'll tell me, like, I worked for mine and I'm not giving it up because my cousin didn't decide to work. I, I have my family's divide. I have family who are upper class and middle class. Because I've I've watched them, I said, "Well, my my uncle, who's upper class, yeah, he worked harder than my other uncle, who's middle class or even in government housing." So the point I'm making is just that um, when you start to look at that class, people who have who are in upper class who worked for theirs, especially immigrants, they're not giving that up because there's other immigrants who didn't work for it. Yes. Uh, well, I think um, it it's. In terms of looking, the, the, in terms of historical materialism, it would be uh, workers. So, if you produce things, that, that's that's how it would be envisioned. So, people who are who are the actual producers versus people who are the owners. And there are all races occupy uh, the ownership versus the producer kind of position. Now, it's true that you probably have. Uh, not proportional representation. So you're going to have many more white people who are like Conrad Black, right? Like, like Conrad Black, there's probably some black people who are, you know, maybe not as rich as him, but are owners of various enterprises and so on. Um, but they have much more in common with Conrad Black, a black person who's a, who's a millionaire who owns a company and so on, than the people who are, you know, producing uh, in very low-paid jobs and are struggling to survive, they're mm -hmm. going to have much more in common with uh, white people and white people and black people who are in that position. So, and and as well, you can see how that could 
form the basis for some commonality in the future. Whereas now what, what I see with all the arguments that are happening is it's really just, um, it seems to be grievance-oriented kind of gotcha politics. Like, and, and I can't, I find this very, very difficult to deal with because I don't want to have conflicts with people on the basis of race. Like, I really don't. And I, I can sort of see where this is going because what you're going to have, and this is happening in the United States, it's just so obvious. You have, um, you know, working class white people who are being told that they're privileged and they should just shut up and they're becoming hostile about this and they are going to become Trumpist types who are going to be white identitarians. Um, and so instead of appealing to them on the basis of class to get a, you know, to enable people who are producers to have the health care that they need, to have the good schools that they need, all these things that everyone really wants for their children, they're being told that, you know, they're a white person and they're just got white privilege and all these kinds of things, which is just going to make them angry and get into this and be attracted to uh, white, what's called white identity politics, which I find is a very destructive, horrible kind of ideology. But we're going into this whole identity politics kind of realm instead of looking at the class issues, which contain, although it's true, white people, you'll find more white capitalists than you're going to find black capitalists. That's going to be the case, and and you're going to find certainly more black capitalists than you're going to find indigenous capitalists. But the indigenous capitalists, the black capitalists, the white capitalists are going to have much more in common with one another than they're going to have in common with the working class of all the different racial groups. Hmm, and that's it's fascinating. Really, you know, so this is this is kind of the problem now we're seeing, which I don't think is very well articulated, um, because everyone's sort of afraid to go into these, like you're just afraid that you're going to say the wrong thing and now you're going to be castigated for being a racist and so on and everyone just goes, oh, I just can't, I can't deal with this so I'm just not going to say anything and and this is causing a lot of, I think this is a, a serious problem that exists uh, right now. So if, if I was to sort of circle back a little bit, not, I, I, I don't want to say to culminate, but, but sort of I've been thinking through, a, you know, sort of, the difficulties with some of the the positions you're presenting and the difficulty being sort of getting an audience to it to engage in you know productive discourse it it sounds um like it's almost not even so much the parallelism view is inherently the problem it's that the discourse is devolving to you have to accept this you have to accept this it, as soon as you sort of stray outside of the current narrative or current aspect of the conversation there's sort of racial you know um you know criticisms thrown towards you as a means to get you to shut up um would you say that's that's a fair like i know you have issues with the parallelism view um but the it sounds like the fundamental problem in the discourse isn't the particular viewpoints as much as it is the inability to engage you know, more viewpoints. Well, I think they're the two are, I think both are problems, but um, so I have a fundamental disagreement with parallelist position, but 
the the greater problem is the reified postmodernism. So there's a really good book. It's called Cynical Theories. It was published. It was written by uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Nice. And 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 they're <laughs> and they are. Um, They've kind of mapped the train out. There's, I'm kind of working in this area myself, so I'm trying to flesh out some of their positions. Um, but they're saying that um, reified postmodernism, so, so postmodernism, which was this kind of abstract relativistic philosophy that existed in the 60s, um, became identity politics in the 70s and the 80s, which is identity politics. Um, that's what they call applied postmodernism. But that Identity politics has now become what they call reified, uh, which means that you have to accept it as being true. So it's kind of this bizarre twist because it started off as a relativistic position, but now it's been turned over so that only the indigenous, for example, indigenous science is the actual true position and the other, the actual scientific position is full. Uh, so it's twisted. Um, anyway, so reified postmodernism is the huge problem now because it is totalitarian. So it prevents people. So when I'm trying to make these arguments in the university system, I am currently in a serious, serious situation fighting for my career at Mount Royal University uh, because of reified postmodernism telling me that I cannot make argu the arguments that I'm making. Like that's what I've been basically told now. I'm fighting it out with them in a, you know, I'm just digging in and fighting it out. But because reified postmodernism has taken over, for the first time in my university life, I'm being told that I cannot argue that the residential schools were not genocidal, for example. Like the, genocide, the, the residential schools had serious problems with them. Whoa. Um, Whoa. <laughs> but they, in my view, are not genocidal because genocidal is a intentional extermination of a particular group. And, and although they were uh, abusive and all sorts of problems, they weren't trying to kill off indigenous people, exterminate indigenous people. So I have been told for the first time that I cannot make that argument. Like this is what people are saying. And that's reified postmodernism because the indigenous perspective has to be accepted. You cannot question it. And if you do, you are a white supremacist and a racist, and you should be fired from your job. That's what's happening. So that, that of course, creates enormous problems in the university because then we cannot really try and figure things out anymore. It's just become a cult-like environment where you're expected to toe the party line, and if you don't, if you challenge it, you're going to have people try and destroy you. Um, so, and then as a result of that, this parallelist position, which I think is flawed and based upon erroneous assumptions, can never can never be challenged. So it's kind of a reinforcement of the kind of uh, uh, flawed position that is going to become more and more entrenched because everyone, you know, and, and it, actually when I was talking to I.J. McCann on the podcast, I, I look back, I don't know how long that ago that was, but that was a lifetime ago. Like, I was relatively optim <laughs> optimistic at the mm -hmm. time. I, I, I'm, things have changed. Like, things okay. have changed just irreparably. And we are in a, now in a, a serious fight 
that I, I would not even have imagined a year ago that, that things were so bad. And everyone who's watching it just knows that their, you know, that their job is at stake. And, and you know, I, I'm hoping that we can turn things around. You know, I will fight to the end. I, I'm not going to be bought out. I'm not going to be nothing. I will not give in. They're going to have to push me out uh, to do it. And whether they will or not is an interesting question. We, it has not been decided, but um, I, I'm amazed at how terrible things are. And it's indigenous. The indigenous aspect is one aspect, but there's trans activism. There's Black Lives Matter. There, you know, all these things. But they're all the same. It's all this reified postmodernist stuff. Okay, well, whether you believe in God or not, um, I'm going to pray for you, um, because <laughs> all truth, to the Christian, all truth is God's truth, and we got to push the boundaries, we got to ask tough questions, and so you're asking tough questions to get to the truth, to be helpful, to be genuine, um, academically, and show academic integrity, so yeah, definitely, um, you know, Joel and I will definitely throw some prayers up for you um, in the weeks to come. But um, yeah, I, I you're welcome to, ask... to do that. It won't have any effect. But what, what I really <laughs> what I really need from you guys is to, you know, join the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. Pressure, you know, uh, send letters to, you know, universities to to encourage them to support open inquiry and this is what we need is we need we need boots on the ground boots mm -hmm. on not, the ground yes. Uh, visions yes. in the sky yeah. yes right I'll, yeah I'll this sure is that. true <laughs> i'll i'll make sure to to put that uh that web page in uh for that organization in the yes in the they're Shores. the ones yeah. that are fighting the fight but they only have about 300 members so we okay. we just uh we, we really need to have organization that you know tries to get the universities back as academic institutions mm -hmm. and not to have this, this this ideological kind of character which is just completely taken over the universities which is amazing mm -hmm. how quickly it's happened so yeah. I, I wanted to to make sure i understood sort of the the issue with the residential schools and and so uh, an indigenous perspective is that it's genocidal Making a counter argument to that is essentially what's kept getting you in trouble. Yes, uh, but sorry, sorry. Could I add to that to what Joel was saying? Because, like, as a teacher, uh, we, you know, we have to teach this, and um, we have Orange Shirt Day, uh, which is to commemorate uh, the survivors of residential schools. So, in light of Joel's question, I would like just to tack on um, the question for you would be. Um, would you say that the indigenous people were forced to go to the school or was it like a mutual decision? It, it, way, it's, very, it's varied. So, so okay. Um, okay, go ahead. It, it depends upon the particular area and the time. So sometimes indigenous people wanted their children to go to school. Sometimes it was mm -hmm. forced. Um, and, and the coercion, you know, was, was a huge problem. Like it was, there was a lot of coercion that was deployed. But the, the and that so I, I totally recognize that and as well of course the the terrible abuse that that took place in many schools as well so so no one is disputing that is is terrible the problem comes when you look at the actual educational purpose of the school so 
the schools were attempted attempting to provide an education. That's what their purpose was. The fact that it was so badly orchestrated and had all these abusive circumstances, that that was not what was the intention of it. So, um, and it's because of that that I think that the calling it genocide is just totally misguided and is, uh, well, in my, uh, I have two chapters coming out in a book uh, called, um, uh, from Truth Comes Reconciliation, I think it's by Rodney Clifton and Mark DeWolf. That's coming out in a couple of months. Um, anyway, I have a couple chapters in there, which is, is talking about, you know, sort of the neo-tribal renter risk kind of aspect, which is you, you call it genocide because you want to extract compensation on that basis. And it's, it's resulted in a distortion of how the the schools are conceptualized. So the schools were created to, to integrate Indigenous people into Canadian society. In order to do that, you had to provide an educational system. There was no educational system in Indigenous society. Uh, so this was kind of the problem, and it was done very coercively and, and had all sorts of abuse and so on. But that does not mean that it was a genocidal uh, kind of uh, intention uh, is being argued by indigenous uh, activists, and because of this uh, reified postmodernism, it's now been declared that this is the actual position which we have to accept. And if we argue against it, uh, we are going to be pushed out. Of the that's, that's well. That's the message I'm getting. I'm fighting it. I'm fighting all the strength that I have to say, you, you're going to have to put a gun to my head. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to say something which I, I don't think is true. And I'm going to continue to make my arguments. And if people think that this is terrible and so on, well, that's their opinion. But you know, I'm here to state the truth as I see it. I'm going to continue to do it. And this is, we'll see how it all wash, you know, how it all, the results of that i i if i on our show we use this term steel manning and and yes um if i wanted to sort of steel man the opposition i think maybe they would argue well the the integration would have been a genocide to their culture and and as i still think that's sort of a this is one of the problems i see in general well i might agree that you could argue that might have been the intention you know I think the problem of sort of redefining words and conflating terms and, you know, you end up with scenarios like this where on the strict definition of genocide, it seems to lack some fundamental characteristics and making yes. such a claim shouldn't be so controversial. Now, someone could disagree. Some, you know, I just look at, obviously use the worst example of genocide we know with the hit with Hitler and the Jews yeah. The motivations are distinctly different, at least to me, from as an outsider, yes. that, as to what was being done. And and on that basis, I, I just find this so peculiar. And, and your point about, um, you know, postmodern, I can't even, I, what was the terminology again? Postmodern. Yes. Uh, so this, this is, re so the latest stage is, is what's called reified postmodernism. And reified is, is to... It, the, the definition of that term is to make real. So um, you have 
the idea that you have to make this real. So the fact that some Indigenous people think that it was genocide, that, that that's their right to think that and to put forward that argument, and they should be entitled to do that. But they shouldn't be entitled to make me have to say that when I don't believe it. Like, I'm going to argue against it, and there should be an acceptance of that. Like, you shouldn't be forcing people to say things that they don't think are true. That, that, that's a huge, huge totalitarian maneuver that is going on here. And I'm, I'm absolutely shocked at how this has taken hold in the last year. Like, really is quite astonishing that, you know, we had some problems in the university system, obviously, but now it's, it, it's, it's so much worse. I, I can't even, I, I, I'm amazed that it, it's just happened so ra rapidly. Um, but just in terms of your steel manning, I think that that's correct. I think um, the, the, one of the fundamental things is that genocide used to be seen in terms of a group extermination of people, so actually killing of people, and maybe you could go so far as to say sterilization of people and, and doing things to actually actually eliminate that group. But if you're going to try to provide people with education, right, you could argue, well, because you taught them to read and write, for example, you destroyed their oral culture because they had a culture that was based upon oral traditions. And now that they have writing, those oral traditions are no longer the dominant kind of way in which they organize themselves. And, and it seems to me they're, they're going in that direction with that. But, but no one would really sort of say that that honestly, right? because no one I don't think would say that you've destroyed a culture because you've taught people to read and write. Like that is a totally, because everyone recognizes that learning to read and write yeah, is a, a benefit. Point. But but they're sort of doing this. It's like, you know, this is not, you know, and then on the other hand, that we're all upset because the educational levels are so low in Indigenous community. Well, if you're going to have an oral culture without any writing, you're going to have low low educational levels in your in your group, right? Like the, this is irrational kinds of arguments that are being made. Um, but because everyone's so intimidated to kind of sort of say, hey, that doesn't make any sense. We just have people just running amok, making arguments, which which seem to me to be not very, um, they don't really seem to hold very much water and they don't seem to be very um, convincing. Um, anyway, so this is, but, but because we, you know, I think that's why the problem of not encouraging people to sort of have an exchange of ideas is so destructive. It just, it just is not allowing anything to be kind of figured out anymore. Yeah, no, I, and and on that note, it sort of is is good. this question that I was all along sort of starting to think through is that it sounds that if you were trying to, um, you know, have a conversation about diagnosing the problems and looking for productive solutions, uh, you'd have a much. More, I would, my question to you is: Do you think you'd have a much more productive conversation who's thinking about this from a free market capitalist perspective? Yeah. Even though that's so antithetical to your position. Yeah, and it's because, as you said, or one, one of you said at the beginning, we all believe in this idea of objective truth. 
so that's the first thing. We have to accept the idea of objective truth, and then we can argue it out based upon our common acceptance of a universal truth, whether it is um, a capitalist market economy or whether it is a, a common ownership type of economy. That's going to be the best for solving these problems. Like, but we're 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 on board with the objective truth. The reified postmodernist types don't accept that. In mm -hmm. fact, they say that it's the indigenous truth that everyone has to defer to because they're the most oppressed. So even if you don't believe it, you've got to accept it because that's the way in which you're going to enable indigenous people to overcome their oppression, which I think if we are, you know, this, that, that doesn't, seem to me to be a very viable uh, you know, way to try to figure things out because you're never going to get non-Indigenous people to say, oh, I'm just going to defer to everything that an Indigenous person says. And, and, and Indigenous people should never have to defer to anything that a non-Indigenous person says. Like, we should never have that kind of predetermined way of thinking about it. It should be, we're all in this together. We're all trying to figure things out. That is, of course, if we accept that there is a universal truth. If we don't accept there's a universal truth, then everything breaks down and we can't communicate anymore. So this is kind of rat with this nonsensical kind of environment that we're dealing with. Yeah, and and what's quite, you know kind of interesting in lieu of this conversation this morning, I was at church and and my pastor sort of started with bringing up the word of the year for 2016 was post truth, <laughs> and and. You know, in reality, what the what that meant was that for many people, objective facts and objective truth are less or either irrelevant or less relevant than personal beliefs and emotions. Uh, and and I think, you know, more and more, it, I, I mean, in 2016, I probably would have thought, oh, that's a weird word. You know, that doesn't really make sense. But looking back, you know, the trajectory that we've gone in the last, as you said, you know, it's surprising how quickly this has happened. You know, that 2016, that word that, you know, post-truth being the word of the year is actually pretty telling is to yeah. the, the culture and environment that we find ourselves yeah. in today. And that's postmodernism. So postmodernism does not accept the idea of a universal truth. And that just the, the, turns everything into a power, a kind of a power game. So it, it's just, uh, you're going to just have people decide to impose upon you things because there's no truth anyway so it makes no difference whereas if we do accept the idea that there's a universal truth now we have a commonality so we we have the commonality to work with but if you don't have that you don't have the commonality and then it becomes this horrible kind of identity politics scenario that we seem to be uh you know faced with and the united states is the best example of that like it just is just absolutely terrible what's happening there and you know people will just support donald trump regardless of what he says like like that you can't <laughs> i just i i'm amazed but th it's no different well it's different in terms of what the the nature of the politics is but um uh, people my colleagues uh, that i'm fighting with they're, they have a sort of a similar view, but their view is that 
you know, you have to accept that there's no such thing as biological sex, or you have to accept that the residential schools were genocidal, or you have to accept all, it's like, well, that's not, we, I don't, I don't think that's true. So for you to force me to say something that I don't think is true is just a completely dehumanizing thing that, that you're doing to everyone. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, I think that's also what led, you know, it sounds like that's what led Jordan Peterson to his, you know, moments yes. and, and rise to fame was sort of, oh, compelled speech was sort of the, and, and I just wanted to, to circle back for a moment. Um, there's a guy, uh, Thaddeus Russell, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's, he's very much like, he would call himself, you know, into the postmodern school. And he would say a lot of what you said about there's no such thing as objective truth is actually sort of a um, derivation from the origins of postmodernism. The and and I just say this for the audience for completeness that the the heart or the origins were more so focused on the person proclaiming truth has a bias, and so we should be skeptic about that truth. And so discovering the objective truth has some reason for question. Um, but the, and, and Thaddeus Russell at least would say that they thought there was objective truth. It's just the difficulty of observing it. Um, but what I think what you've said is very true about the culture today with regards to no such thing as objective truth. They sort of just, you know, post-truth as that word I referenced. So Well, I should, I, I should clarify a little bit. and I find this to be helpful from uh, thinking these, these things through. I like to separate things into three, what I call three levels. Opinion, belief, knowledge, and truth. So truth is a universal, it is reality, it's what actually exists. So, But we never know what truth actually is, because we're human beings and we're dealing with, um, you know, our observations and our methods, which are, which can never completely understand everything. But that doesn't change the fact that there's a truth that exists. It's just that we're trying to go towards it. We're trying to become closer and closer to truth. And knowledge is our best guess as to what that truth is. So it's the best evidence that we have as to what reality is. But that can change. So right today we have, uh, you know, the quark is the the most basic particle and that's our knowledge but then and there probably is even a, a smaller particle than a quark now but uh, at some point there's probably going to be smaller particles that are going to be but we don't know that right now because the evidence doesn't show that so and or, then you the have tools we have to observe yeah and then you have your belief and opinion which is just something that you think and don't really have any evidence to support it um and i would you know that religion, like religion, is in the belief opinion kind of area, not in knowledge, um, because there's no evidence to support the existence of God. Is my own atheistic uh, perspective. But you obviously think that it is knowledge, or maybe you think it's truth, which is the reality. But that again, I I, I like to I like to use the word truth to refer to the this kind of universal that is the way things are, but I can actually never know what those things are because I always have to leave myself open and say, well, 
okay, I think this there's a lot of evidence to support this, but if something else comes along which shows me to be wrong, then I've got to change that view, and that's going to be sort of a revision of of the knowledge that I have about a particular. Yeah, I think I think to some extent we would agree uh, with the classifications. Um, I I mean I would say even for us as Christians, you know what we call call classify as truth. Um, I don't want to say there's a limitation on, on the number in, the, in, let's say, the religious category. There's a limitation on, on a number of things. Um, but the reason I say that is because, you know, we, like Darnell and I, use this idea of, like, exegesis of, of you know, if I take the, the Bible as an authoritative document, my ability to understand and interpret it f- starts to fall into opinion, um, so I just thought, you know, those classifications you gave are, are helpful and, and we would probably apply something similar. Um, so, yeah. um, just to, to start to wrap up, um, you know, if the, I, I think you gave the one website to, that you'd want people to, to check out, but, uh, from people, you know, getting in, reaching out to some of your content, uh, or, um, reaching out to you, what, how could, how could the listener, uh, get in contact with you? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I should mention so I, I have a group that I formed in 2016. It's called the Rational Space Network. Uh, and, and they have a Facebook page where some content is posted. Um, I have, uh, I used to be on Twitter, um, and I still am, but with the current battles that I'm engaged in at Mount Royal University, I made my Twitter account into a satirical character. Oh, I, I did find that, and I uh, quite enjoy your reference to Tatiana McGrath. So yes, um, we will. So it's called Francis McGrath, Francis with an X. Um, and so I'm what I'm, you know, and I don't quite know. Some people have told me I should not be doing this because it kind of, uh, it it it's it's undermining my credibility as an academic. Um, but I find because my colleagues, some of my colleagues are so irrational, I can't, I can't engage with them intellectually. So I just satirize their, uh, what they're doing. Um, and the whole wokeness, I just satirize, you know, all the woke kind of ideology. But anyway, so that's kind of interesting. It's kind of a work in progress. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm not sure if it's, I, I'm kind of interested to hear what people think about it, whether they think it's funny or not. I, I try to make it funny, it but funny. some people say they don't think it's funny. Oh, yeah, we thought, it was, <laughs> we thought it was funny. They think it's, yeah. oh good, okay, well, some people like it, some people don't. No. I, I'm still kind of working. Not in, in Twitter, in Twitter, um, I have this no, <laughs> no, well, I, I was getting me into trouble, got me into quite a lot of trouble. Um, but there's, I have this troll whose name is Wanda Yatso or Datso or something who keeps on making this very rude, woke uh, kind of comments about it. But it's kind of funny. Sometimes I will engage with with Datso about their views. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of funny. But but the Rational Space Network is the real real serious. You know, it's 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 completely straight about the problems. And then on Facebook, my Facebook page, Francis Widowson, is is straight as well. I just I just am doing serious academic kinds of stuff there. 
Um, so I have a variety of things that I'm I'm trying to do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll make oh. sure I'll have all that in the, in the show notes page for the listener to to reach out with you. Yeah. No. Totally. Yeah. And then the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely put those in the show notes. Yeah, we'll definitely put those in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Francis, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your two cents with my two cents and Joel's two cents. Yes, thank you very much. That was very enjoyable. No problem. Six cents makes change. But you heard me? Does that make sense? I hear